Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. I'm so happy to be with you guys. Uh, it has been a while since I've been up here. Uh, I've had a very tiny reason for that. Uh, so for those of you who know, uh, my husband and I just adopted our son Malachi in September. Uh, so I have been a little bit busy for the past nine months, not sleeping. Um, you can really be busy and not sleep. I miss sleep so much. Um, and so Mike has asked a couple of times, you know, hey, you want to preach? And I've just said, no, I, I can't right now. Uh, but finally, uh, this past couple of weeks, he's like, hey, I'm going to be out of town. And I'm like, okay, I think I have caught up on enough sleep that I can form full, coherent sentences. Because that's the key. Like, that's when you know you've caught up a little bit on the sleep. It's like, okay, I can form words again. I'm back. Woo! Um, so, happy Father's Day to all the dads here. Um, this is our first Father's Day, so it's very exciting. First Mother's Day happened, you know, back then. And uh, so I was, I was telling my uh, grandparents, actually, I was like, hey, I'm preaching tomorrow. And they're like, oh, are you doing a Father's Day sermon? And I said, no, that would have been great. That would have been a really good idea. Um, but I forgot it was Father's Day. Uh, so the sermon is not Father's Day related. I apologize, dads. Um, but we love you. Sweetwater Christian loves you and thinks that you're wonderful. Uh, everybody says that when you have kids, it changes you forever, right? Well, I feel like I'm basically the same person, okay? I haven't fundamentally changed. Um, however, I will say that I have a little bit of a shift in my perspective, right? I just see certain things a little bit differently. So, for instance, uh, the... <laughs> One time, in particular, I'm taking Malachi out from a doctor's appointment, and I'm just rolling him, right, in the stroller, got everything situated, and I see this other woman walking towards me, okay, and she has got a car seat with a baby in one arm, just one arm in it, okay, and then in her other hand, she has her other child, okay, a toddler, two or three probably. She's just walking, right, and I see her from afar, and I just want to like give her a salute you know I'm just like I you know before Malachi I would have been polite I would have opened the door right it's like oh you've got you don't have any hands that's the nice thing to do but now I know that that car seat is 20 pounds without a baby in it 20 pounds she just got this in one arm with the baby holding this other kid, walking a busy street, just like owning it, okay? And I'm like, you are a warrior. You are an absolute warrior. I salute you. So parents, all that to say, y'all are awesome. Everybody's awesome. But I just, I now have a perspective. Happy Father's Day. Okay, that's all I've got. Sorry. So in our text this morning, we're actually going to be in Genesis 1. So if you've got your Bibles, if not, there's a Bible in front of you underneath your chair. Genesis 1 is where we're going to be. Very easy to find. It is the first book. 
and we're going to be in chapter one, first page. I made it very easy for y'all this morning. Uh, so this is the origin story of ancient Israel, okay? Uh, you might be familiar with it. There's a little bit of controversy around it. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. But our culture also should be familiar with some origin stories thanks to the Marvel Universe, right? Uh, I don't know if you guys are fans of superhero movies. My husband and I are nerds. We own it, okay? So we love that stuff. So you've gotten maybe a little bit of origin stories in your life. So origin stories are all about beginnings. Beginnings, they're epic. They tend to have battles between good and evil, okay? Filled with drama. And our own origin story today is not going to disappoint. So with that, let's read starting in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Okay, so let's stop there, because right away we are introduced to two characters. Okay? Right away, we are told that there are two beings that are in charge of what I'm going to call the creation project. Okay? So in verse 1, it says, God created the heavens and the earth, and then the Spirit of God is hovering over the earth. Okay? So the Hebrew word used for God in verse 1 is Elohim, which is a male noun, and the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. You gotta, you gotta give the guttural there, uh, which is a female noun. Okay, so you have Elohim, Ruach, which means that from the very first words of our scripture, God is introduced to us as both male and female. Male and female. This is actually pretty important to the story, and it's gonna come up again when God creates humanity. So just keep that in the back of your mind. So the spirit is described here as hovering over the earth. And the question is, why is she doing that? Why is the spirit hovering? Is she relaxing? Is she stretching? What is the spirit up to? Now the clue is going to be in the text, because the verb to hover only shows up two other times in the Hebrew Bible. And one of those times is in Deuteronomy 32, verse 11. And it's going to give us a little bit more insight into what the spirit is doing. So I'll just read that for you this morning. Deuteronomy 32 reads, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters, there's that same verb again, flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. So for the non-bird experts in the room, okay, <laughs> pinions uh, are the outer part of the bird's wings that are responsible for flight. I had to Google that because I did not know what pinions were. So the image in Deuteronomy is of a mother bird, and this is describing God, saying God is like a mother bird who is fluttering over her young, spreading out her wings, ready to catch them and bear them to safety. So take that image back to verse 2. The spirit is hovering over the earth. Seems to imply that like a mother bird, she is also ready to catch whatever is in the earth and bear it to safety. That's the image that we have. Now you might be thinking, Michelle, that sounds weird. Right? Genesis 1, 
is about God creating the world, not God saving the world, catching it and burying it from a watery chaos. Well, just bear with me. And if anything seems weird, remember, blame Mike. <laughs> Good rule of thumb. Okay, that's what we're going to do. All right, so verse 2, I'm just reading what the text is saying here, okay? We see that something is already there, earth is already there, and there's a problem with it, okay? Back in verse 2, the earth is described as being without form and void, and darkness is over the face of the deep. So the Hebrew there is tohu and vohu. So it's, it's formless, it's void, it's chaotic. Uh, my interpretation or translation would be, it's a chaotic mess. The earth is just a mess right now. And for the rest of the story, God is going to address the tohu and the vohu. For the next seven days, he is going to address that problem. Okay, So we're actually going to read a lot of text this morning. <clears throat> so in order to help uh, us track through that text, I have actually prepared a handout that our deacons are going to pass out right now. For the note takers in the room, I am about to make your dreams come true, okay? Because you are gonna have something to take notes on. Now, if you are not a note taker and you're like, this feels like school, Michelle, and it's summer, ignore that paper, put it down. You do you, okay? I'm also gonna have a PowerPoint. It's gonna help us. So you can take notes. You can make it a paper airplane. Actually, bad suggestion. Don't do that right now, okay? but it's there for you if you want it, just to help us track through the text. <coughs> because sometimes reading scripture is like trying to drink from a fire hose. It's just a lot of information, okay? So if you need a pen, we will get one to you. Okay. All right, so we're gonna keep reading and I'm going to stop it each day and kind of explain what's going on, all right? So starting in verse 3, we're going to look at day 1. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So if you will move to the next slide. Maybe. You know what? These were even moved so that I wouldn't step on them. And I still stepped on them. Okay, day one. We have God has made the day and the night. Right? Technically, light and darkness, but he calls them day and night. That's going to give us a clue. The line is there because he separates it. Every time he's going to talk about separating, it's kind of important for us to note. Okay? So day one, day and night. Also, he calls it good. All right, verse 6, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Yes, I just said, let it separate the waters from the waters. We're going to talk about that. Okay? And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Okay, so move to the next slide. All right. What has just happened? 
is God has separated the waters above and the waters below. Ancient people thought that the sky was filled with water. Okay? So what he's done is created the sky and the sea. And heaven, some of your translations might uh, translate expanse as firmament or dome. So the idea, the theory, right, to an ancient person, you see that there was rain, rain came down, but then rain didn't always come down. So there had to be something there that was solid that held the waters back. So that is this solid piece, which they called heaven. Okay. So day two, moving on to day three, starting in verse nine. And God said, let the waters under the heavens, the seas, be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas and God saw that it was good. Okay, so move to the next slide. We have the seas are gathered and now dry land appears. Notice he does not say, let there be dry land. The dry land is already there, right? The seas are gathered and the dry land appears. So this goes back to the spirit hovering over the waters, which seems to imply, right? She's there ready and waiting to catch creation. Ta-da, there it is, right? God has now drawn back the waters, separated the waters so the dry land can appear. This was what was hidden underneath the tohu and the vohu. But day three is not done. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, each which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Notice once again, God does not say, let there be plants. Right? What instead do we see? Let the earth sprout forth vegetation. So he's gathered the waters, dry land has appeared, so that now the dry land can be fruitful. So in the beginning, you have a chaotic, watery mess, and now God is kind of separating it out. He's allowing it to be fruitful. Okay. So this here is the heart of the controversy of Genesis 1, and we're just going to briefly talk about it this morning. So the days, right? Did these things literally happen in a seven-day period? That's the question, right? Uh, which really is rooted in, is Genesis 1 a story of how things materially, scientifically came to be? That's the heart of that question. So let's address it. Let's take a look at that. Uh, if we say yes, right, this is what it is, materially, scientifically, the days are literal, right away, we are going to run into some problems, okay? Uh, first, looking at the days themselves, we have a little bit of a problem with the order, okay? So we've just read one through three. Day three, we have plants. Well, we don't have a sun yet. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not a great gardener, but I do know one thing, that plants need the sun in order to survive, right? So we have plants on day three, and we haven't gotten there yet, but sun, moon, and stars happen on day four. Now, for those who have been taking very good notes, someone might come up with, hey, 
But wait a minute, what happens on day one? God makes light, right? So maybe, maybe this could happen. There is light, so the plants are okay. Well, this brings with it another problem. How can you have light without a source? Why is light created on day one, but the sun, moon, and stars aren't created until day four? That seems like a long time to wait, right? It seems like a weird order. So what is going on here? All right, so we have a problem with the order. Uh, the other problem is not related to the order at all, but is a question of where are the dinosaurs, right? I mean, they are so cool. My nephew loves dinosaurs. Why not have Genesis 1, the story of the dinosaurs, right? But, but they're not here. They aren't talked about in Genesis 1. Why would God leave that out? And unless their fossils are a massive conspiracy, we know that they existed, right? And that they existed seemingly a long time before we were here. So why are they not mentioned? Genesis 1 doesn't talk about that. So if we're going to treat Genesis 1 as a scientific explanation of how everything was made, we've got a little bit of a problem because it doesn't really seem to be doing that. So if Genesis 1 doesn't give us that, I mean, do we just throw it out? Obviously, that's not going to be my answer this morning. I mean, otherwise we could all go home, right? Which maybe you're like, let's do that, Michelle. <laughs> let's go home. There's, I don't know, sports, basketball is something on Sure. Obviously, that's not going to be my answer this morning. So Genesis 1 is not the story of how things are materially, scientifically made. The right question, right, that we need to ask is, what is the story actually trying to tell us? Are we trying to fit the story to what we expect, right? A good rule of thumb is that uh, when it comes to the Bible, we need to let it speak on its own terms. We need to let the story loose, right? So how do we do that? Well, y'all should all come to my Bible 101 class to find out. Shameless plug. Uh, but no, the, the two things that we need to know this morning that are going to help us do that is first understand what is the genre of what we're reading, okay? So genres uh, help us understand what to expect about a book. So I am a big sci-fi fantasy nerd. I love, love this genre. And I have tried fruitlessly to get my friends to read this genre. And they hate it. And it's okay. Not everybody can like awesome things. But again, right, that's not everybody's genre. It's like if it's got wizards and magic, I don't want to read about it. Okay, because that's what you expect at a sci-fi fantasy. If I am reading a romance novel, and at the very last scene, the two main characters get eaten by zombies. Well, I'm going to be a little confused because I was kind of rooting for those two, and then they got eaten. So what's the deal, right? Genres tell us what to expect. So the genre of Genesis 1 is poetry, okay? I will spare you the scholarly... Uh, debates and just give you the sum up. Genesis 1, scholars have pretty much universally agreed that the genre of that text is a poem. And I am going to read a poem 
with different expectations than if I were to read a seven-day event in a science textbook, right? I am going to read a poem about seven expecting multiple layers of meaning, symbolism, metaphor. So this is the genre of our text. We need to know the genre. Second thing we need to know is that the story does not belong to us. So a quick show of hands, anybody here read fluently ancient Hebrew and Greek? No? I really was hoping like somebody will ruin that example and like, yeah, I got that. I know ancient Hebrew and Greek. I'm fluent. Uh, I'm being obviously very tongue-in-cheek here, right? But the point is that our word of God was first a word to Israel. And Israel spoke Hebrew. And they had a different culture and a different worldview than we do. So God first speaks to Israel. And when God shares the story about making the world, he meets us where we are. That is always how revelation works, right? He is going to meet us where we are. Think about the very incarnation. God's like, I really need to show humanity who I am. How am I going to do that? I'm going to become human. I'm going to meet them where they are. This is always how God works. So the story was first a story to Israel, which means we need to ask, what would seven days mean to ancient Israel? If this is a poem, we should expect symbolic meaning. What might that symbolize? And if we can get to the heart of that, we get to the heart of the story. So let's go back to the days, because we've only gotten through three. Uh, so we're now going to look at this as a poetic structure, and the order and number of the days will have symbolic meaning. So if you'll go to the next slide, and the next one after that, there we go. Okay, so we've gone through the first three days. Day one was day and night. Day two, skies and sea. Day three, dry land vegetation. So we're letting go of our expectations about what these days should mean. And right away, we're going to start to see a pattern. Days one through three each seem to be about creating an orderly space. So remember, God's trying to address the problem of earth in verse two, which is that it's formless, it's void, it's chaotic. So life needs stability. Life needs order in order to thrive. And if the earth is just a watery mess, well, not much can live on that. So if days one through three are about creating orderly spaces, it follows that days four through six should be related to these spaces in some way. Well, not only do we find that that's true, but the order actually mimics the order of one through three. If the first days are about creating those orderly spaces, days four through six are about filling those spaces with life, because now they've been ordered, now they're stable. Okay, so let's test this theory out. So day one, if you'll go to the next slide. So day one, is about creating day and night. If the order is going to be mimicked here, day four should fill that space, okay? And we find that in verse 14, what does God create? Sun, moon, and stars. Well, that's gonna fill day and night, okay? So if I'm right with this theory, day five should fill the space of skies and seas. So verse, hang on, 
20 through 23, what does God create on day five? Birds and fish. Right? So they're going to fill the space that's been created in day two. Y'all know where I'm going. Day six, what should be created? What's going to fill the space? Land animals and humans. Right? That's going to fill the space, the orderly space that's been created of dry land and vegetation. See what happens when we let the story loose? We're able to see that the days actually do have an order, but it's a poetic order. It speaks to God creating orderly spaces that can be filled with life. And everything is good, but it doesn't end there. God and his spirit are going to tell us something very important about human beings in day six. And then there's one more day where we are told that God rests. So let's pick up our scriptures and start reading again in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right. God says, Let us make man in our image, humanity in our image. And he creates them as male and female. Notice the plural is used here. Let us create humanity in our image. Right? Because you had God, Elohim, and the spirit, Ruach. And so it's no surprise that when you have male and female, the divine image is also male and female. So when they create human beings, they are made in their image. But what does being made in the divine image mean? Well, in the ancient world, before the internet, uh, kings would have their statues made and put on the outermost part of their empire, right? Because people would probably not travel to the capital and see their king. So then they would look at the statue because he wanted to make sure that his subjects knew who their king was. And that imagery is what we would call the divine image. That's what's being evoked here. So again, being made in the image of God when you look at any human being, what that is saying is, you are seeing a glimpse of what God is like. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Because inevitably, you're going to start thinking about somebody that you don't like. God is being very intentional here. He wants us to pay attention. Right? They are saying, that person that you don't care for, they are made in my image. All humanity is made in the image of God. All humanity has intrinsic, unconditional value. Uh, Dorothy Day, who uh, was a famous Catholic worker, some of y'all may know her, uh, of her, she had a famous quote that I repeat to myself a lot, um, and I would repeat to my students that I taught. She said, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. I really only love God 
as much as I love the person I love the least. And I really hate that quote, right? But I need it. I need to remind myself, because this is the truth, that being made in the divine image makes us here, right? Because you can't say that you love God and hate one of his image bearers. You can't do it. Jesus would say that whatever you do to the least of these, you have done to me. God, for better or worse, has bestowed us with his image, his likeness. And he forever looks at us this way. It is unalterable. Nothing can change it. He looks at us and sees the divine image. When you look at another human being, you are looking at the image of God. It's powerful stuff right here at the very beginning of our story. And you know, I'm kind of glad. I'm okay that there aren't dinosaurs in there. That he didn't give us the story of the Big Bang, right? I can read about that in a science textbook. But the Bible gives us a different story. The story of who we are. The story of why we're here. The story of why it all matters. Not only does God give us his image, but he also gives us gifts in the story. He gives us food, and he gives us blessing, and then he tells us to subdue the earth, to take care of it. Now, the language here for subdue is that of a gardener, is that of a gardener tending her garden. This is not a blank check to treat creation however we want, contrary to how it has sometimes been interpreted. And it's always good to be reminded that our first task, our first charge from God, is to care for the earth, for the earth and its non-human inhabitants. I would always tell my students, dolphins can't recycle. That's on you, right? It is our charge to care for the earth. We are the ones given that responsibility. Okay, so the last thing that God does is rest. So if you will turn to the next page, to chapter 2, we're going to read our final bit of text here. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay, so this seems strange. Because what we know about God is that he doesn't get tired. Uh, so why does he rest? Well, we're given a clue here in the text because he blesses the seventh day and he makes it holy. So there's something significant about this seventh day. And remember, the story is first a story to Israel. So we need to ask ourselves, is there something significant about seven? Maybe the number seven uh, remember, this is poetry. Did this have symbolic meaning to ancient Israel? Maybe there's something that they're hearing that we're missing. And what we know from this time period, uh, for those who have studied it, seven was a significant number for the ancient Near East. Seven represented the number for perfection, for completion. Seven was also very strongly associated with the temple. 
If they hear the number seven, Israel is thinking temple. Now, you may be thinking, Michelle, that seems like a stretch. Seven means temple? Well, let me just test this out, because every culture has numbers like this. We all have numbers that carry weight and significance. So I'm just going to test some numbers out on you guys. Be thinking about what they might represent to you in your mind. Don't say it out loud, all right? So if I were to say 9-11, I do not have to explain what that number might mean to you, right? We're automatically thinking of the two towers. If I were to say 1776, right? We're automatically thinking about our independence. If I were to say the number 13, or maybe Friday the 13th, okay? We're, our, we're thinking, I don't want to be driving on that day, or I don't want to be out at night, right? Because that means unlucky. So every culture has numbers that carry significance, right? Uh, the problem is, this number was significant a while back. We didn't know the context. But seven, to an ancient Israelite, they are thinking this is about temple. This is about a temple. And the reason why is because almost every temple festival happened over seven days or seven weeks. When Solomon built his temple, they had a seven-day inauguration ceremony, which means that Israel is thinking, okay, God's making something in seven days. God is making a temple. This is what God is doing. So what is Genesis 1, our origin story, trying to tell us? Well, I would argue it's telling us mainly four things. The first is that God makes order out of chaos. This is God's MO. This is how God operates. When God sees chaos, he doesn't delight in it. He creates stability. He creates order. He fixes what has gone wrong. He doesn't like to stir things up. He wants to calm things down, brings peace and order for the flourishing of life. The second thing that Genesis 1 tells us, through the number 7, is that creation is a temple. All of it. All of creation is a temple. Not only does God make a formless and void earth ordered, he makes it sacred. He calls it holy. God affirms the goodness of creation. Can you guess how many times God calls creation good in our story? Can you guess the number? Yep. Seven times he calls creation good. He affirms the goodness of creation. The temple is ultimately a place for God to dwell, right? So when Israel built the temple, it was a symbol for what creation already was. And God, countless times in our scriptures, says that to them. He says, you're going to build me a house? I've already built one. And I have billions of suns and galaxies and maybe multiverses, if that turns out to be true. Right? So you've built me a little house? That's cute. I have a house. And it's all sacred. The entire universe is my temple. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, Isaiah 66. So if earth, that's the second thing, earth is a temple, then the third thing Genesis 1 tells us is that humanity is its priests. If the earth is a temple, human beings 
are its priests. All humans made in the image of God from the beginning are blessed with a divine image. It is unalterable. Every human being is invited to participate with God and his spirit in the creation project. We're invited to participate from the beginning as his priests. The fourth and final thing that the creation story tells us is that God isn't done. Divine rest meant something very different in the ancient world. So when an ancient Israelite hears that God rested, it meant that God is now seated on his throne. Like he's, he's taking a seat, right? He's not taking a seat on the recliner. He's taking a seat on the throne. Rest means rule. We know that the story keeps going. And that even though God has established order, not two chapters later, we see that chaos once again invades. But God is seated on his throne, not as a distant, uncaring ruler, but as a loving father. That's the rest of the story. Creation is attacked from all sides by chaos and evil, and God restlessly pursues us with order, peace, and the flourishing of life. What the New Testament will call the kingdom of God. So I don't know about you, but as I was writing the sermon, I uh, was reminded that when I look out in the world, to me, it still looks like it's a chaotic mess. I just have to turn on the news and get real depressed real quick. Sometimes it's hard for me to believe that God makes all things good. Uh, one of my favorite songs actually has this in the refrain of the chorus over and over, that he makes all things good. And right now, I have that song on repeat because I need to be reminded of it right now. And that's also why I'm going to keep coming back to this story. Because I need to hear the story again. I need to hear that God does not delight in chaos. That he makes all things good, all things sacred. I need to come every week to the table and be reminded of the gift of life given through Jesus. I need to gather with my brothers and sisters as we come to the table and we share in the life of Christ and I look and see the divine image in all of you and my fellow human beings. Genesis 1 is a story about beginnings. But as we come to the table this morning, we know that the story didn't end there. That the climax of the story came through the death of God's own son and that out of divine love, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, that God gave himself so that through him and the power of his spirit, they truly will make all things good.